I've got my uh, CIMC cup here that I'll be drinking my water from today. And it's an honor. It's always an honor to be able to share with the Cambridge Insight community. As I was sitting, I wasn't uh, intending to do it, but I was having a fair, fair amount of memories of uh, the time when I, I lived in Barrie, Massachusetts. It was about 30 years ago, perhaps, and I moved in to Cambridge to work closely with Larry. And uh, in all the years that I was uh, mentoring with Larry or being mentored by Larry, um, I would come to, the, to Larry's classes, often in the basement of the, of the center, and also be a regular participant in the Wednesday in the Wednesday uh, talks. So I just was kind of feeling into the the sense that as we do this now, uh, we don't have that vibrancy of the of being together physically, and yet that sense that we're all we all have a strong sense of community as well, uh, and that that supports us is it was very enlivening for me. So it's uh, it's great to be back or to to be with you now and. Um, this evening's talk is uh, called the Bade Karata Sutta, and, or, and then there are different translations of it. Uh, and the one I'm going to be using the title of it's, it's called One Auspicious Day by uh, Tani Saro Bhikkhu, who's the translator. There are other, uh, there are other titles. Uh, one Fortunate Attachment is another title, and um, Ideal Lover of Solitude. So, and other translators are uh, um, Yananda and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. There's, there's a quite, a, quite a range of, of different uh, translations of this, but I liked, the, I liked using, and I'll be using mostly uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu for the translation that I work with. I might bring in a little bit of other ones, um, but I really like the sense of this. It's auspicious. How do we have an auspicious day? Now, this, this sutta was framed, this teaching uh, was framed about around a time when the Buddha was at, uh, was at the Jetta Grove, which was uh, in Northern India, a place where he spent many of the rains, many rains, and he'd give many classic teachings there over the years. And, and this was one. So this is one auspicious day, and actually it's sometimes translated, translated as an auspicious night, and that's because it was, it was what is good for a 24-hour period? And they used to have a lunar, this is a little history here. They used to have a lunar calendar. It went by the, the moon cycles. So it would be the nighttime instead of daytime. But now that we're using a solar cycle, then uh, the, the translation was, was, was for a sun cycle, so for the day. And also this includes a 24-hour period, not just a 12-hour period. So the teaching here is really about investigating our relationship to time, past, future, and present, and seeing how, as we investigate, and the Buddha has very clear instructions on how we should relate to time in terms of uh, being able to free ourselves or get caught in habitual cycles of suffering. So it's a it's a gateway into an exploration of time, but within this, it's a very direct looking at the Four Noble Truths and how we construct our sense of self, separate self, how we create reactive suffering, and how we can become free of these things. 
And for me, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a direct, it's a very much of a direct wisdom teaching. In many of the, like if we did a sutta on the, the Eightfold Path, it would talk about sila, samadhi, panya, so the ethics, concentration, wisdom. Now I'll bring in some of these elements as we speak, but this is really pointing at the heart of our relationship to, to being in relationship to time. So it's a, it's a direct kind of a, a direct pointing experience. Now in the time of the Buddha, when suttas were being given often, there's after the sutta or the talk is given, they, it said that, you know, 500 monks and nuns or whatever all became enlightened. Now, <laughs> the only ambition I would have here is, is that you listen from the place where this isn't just an intellectual exercise, and there is a bit of formula, formula teaching here. So I'll be diving into the sutta and some of the nitty gritty of it. Um, but when we listen from the place of an open mind and we kind of let wash through a sense of judgment or comparison and really see if we can relate to what the Buddha in this sutta, it's very clear. He's giving us pointing instructions on how to relate to this moment's experience. So see if we can listen from that uh, place. And of course, after the talk, then there's, there's time for question and answer. So I hope we can have a lively discussion. So first I'll just read, the sutta is composed of um, a kind of a pith teaching, which is given in the beginning and then towards the end again, and then some, some details, some refinements are given. And I won't work through all of those, I'm going to read the basic teaching, and then we'll go through it part by part and, and bring in just a bit of the other parts uh, where it seems appropriate. So here's his instructions for us, direct instructions. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right there, right there. Not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today. For who knows, tomorrow, death, question mark. There's no bargaining with mortality and his mighty horde. Whoever lives thus ardently, relentlessly, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day, so says the peaceful sage. So let's go through just line by line. The first one is, has to do with past and future. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. Some of the other translations for the chasing after the past are to trace back or to revive. And just let's just pause and see how much we, we do this. How, how much do we trace back? It's a sense of leaning into memories, 
leaning into uh, the good old days or the things that went wrong in the past. And similarly, he says you should not place expectations on the future. The other words for this that were used are building hopes or yearning for. The sense of moving into the future with the mind leaning into. So with both of these, there's a sense of not being with what is arising as it is. There's something extra. There's a moving into. There's a moving into either what we call direction in time, future and past. And of course, this is our thoughts about the past, memories. It's our thoughts about the future. But why does he say you shouldn't do it? Why not? How much do we enjoy reveling in the past or let's say we're at work and it's frustrating and we're gonna go on vacation in three weeks. So we start living through the, the fact that maybe we were sitting on the beach already. We're living through that lens. Feels good, maybe. Could feel good or bad. Whether we're wallowing in something, could be anxiety for the future. Could be a bad memory, traumatic one, or could be a good one. But we can see when we look at our own experience, the tendency is a very strong, there's a very strong tendency for our minds to move in these two directions. And he said, you shouldn't do it. Well, fundamentally, the reason we, he says, don't do it is because the Buddhist teachings are oriented towards a clarity of really being with things as they are in the moment. And as we go through the sutta and as we explore in our practice, we start to touch the depth of this. We start to touch the possibility that this brings a real different quality in living. So it's not shouldn't as in right or wrong. It shouldn't in terms of if we want to live in a way that is fresh and clear, then this gets in the way of that. It's like when we do this, we're putting on colored glasses. We're putting something over the immediacy of now. And often these energies are bound up in craving and clinging, wanting. So these, the descriptive words he's using are movements that have to do with an unsettled mind and heart. And so it can, be, it can be a pushing away energy in the past or an unpleasant experience or possibility for the future, or it can be a leaning into. But both of these are within the framework of the mind that, that, that craves, that moves, pulling towards or pushing away what actually is. And we do this all the time, don't we? It's like autopilot. <laughs> So the Buddha goes on and says, and describes this in more detail. And this is a little bit of a technical part. How, how monks, and this is in the sort of the uh, 
the descriptive part of the sutta and there each each stanza has a piece for this but i'm not going to use all of them it's quite technical uh, but i'm doing it now you'll see why and how monks does one chase after the past one gets carried away with the delight of in the past i had such a such a form in the past i had such and such a feeling i had such a such perception i had such a thought formation i had such consciousness this is what he calls chasing after the past. And then he says, how does one not chase after the past? One does not get carried away with delight, or it could be repulsion, but in this commentary, it's, it's, it's delight, it's that movement. Delight, in, in the past, I had such and such a body, feeling, perception, thought fabrication, consciousness. One does not get carried away. And this leads right into the sense of what creates a human being. So we all know that at the core of the wisdom teachings of the Buddha is a, a fundamentally looking into the nature of, of who we are, how we construct our sense of self, and how that, that construction impels us, compels us to move through the world in certain ways. So that this, he, he frames the sense of not getting, he frames this in terms of the self, which is described as five, five khandas or skandhas. This is a little Buddhist psychology, but uh, it's actually, it can be fairly practical. And this is what's, what's called made, makes up the self, makes up who an individual is. And this whole practice is around our own, it's an inner path of exploration and it's around our own subjective our own subjective experience inside, it's an inner path, but then how that relates to the world as well. So the five khandas are form. So just, just kind of feel into this, as I say, form, which is the bodily form. And this is uh, just all the things that our senses, eyes, ear, nose, body, tongue, all how our how our five senses function through this body. And the second one is feeling. And this is the sensate experience we have through our senses, and especially the sensate experience as it relates to, to pleasure, discomfort, and neutrality. But it's, that, it's the experience that's through the body and the senses. So remember, as we go through these, see how this relates to how we relate to who we are, okay, what we are. And then the perception is the third one, and that's, that's working through, through every time we see, hear, smell, taste, or touch, there's a, there's a perception that's happening. The eye, what we see, that we perceive. We're perceiving something. So it's, it's light in the eyes, it's nose and smell, it's uh, body and tactile sensation, et cetera. And the fourth one is our mental formations. That's what we do, all of our concepts. That's what we do in relation to the input that comes. So we have mental, we have this mental constructs that are formed all the time. From little ones to big ones. All of our thoughts. And then the fifth one is just the, the awareness or the consciousness that arises in relation to the previous four. 
So it's it's not the it's not the kind of abiding awareness, or it's not it's not the consciousness. It's a consciousness that arises with each sense impression. Okay, when 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 you close your eyes, uh, you can't see, but when you open them up and there's light and the eyes are open and the object and the eyes are functioning, consciousness arises. Every time you hear my words, there's the sound, there's the ear, consciousness is arising. Okay, like this. So this is what the Buddha said makes up the self. Now, what's interesting and very important for this is that it's not just that this is what makes up our self. They're called the khandas or heaps or aspects, but they're called clinging khandas, which means that we get this sense of clinging, invested in, within this. And that's kind of when the, the, the trouble starts. Because we invest something that is separate, that creates a separate identity, and it gets bound up in wanting to have pleasure and push away, pleasurable experience and push away unpleasurable experience, etc. So we, and then it enters into what, once we have this sense of ourself, is, is how we suffer and how we become, can become free. So they're clean kindness. So this, this teaching now, as we dive deeper into it, it's all about the Four Noble Truths. So we know the difference when we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and they're just happening. But we're not creating any, we're not creating any sense of adding anything onto it, right? It's just pure. There's not a thought formation. So suffering happens when. So suffering, the first noble truth is there is suffering. And the second is that it's based on this mind that craves, that clings, doesn't see clearly. The third noble truth is that there is freedom and the fourth is the path. So the freedom would be like when the khandas are functioning, but there's no clinging. There's a purity of perception. There's a purity, a, a cleanness without, and in the sutta, we're not leaning into the past or the future. In terms of how this plays out, so bringing real life situation of how cause and effect plays out. It's a very simple teaching of what's called dependent origination. We see how this functions in the world. We have contact, right? So that's within within the kindness, within who we are, contact, feeling. So then we have pleasure, discomfort, or we like it or don't like it. And then the mind jumps in. This is our thought, perceptions, thought formations with clinging. Jumps in, contact feeling. We crave something. And it can be positive or negative. So this is chasing after the past or the future, right? Investing it. Craving, clinging. We want. We cling. And then out of that, the sense of I, then we become, we act out of that. That that impulse of pushing and pulling leads us, because we're identified, leads us into action. And it seems like this can be positive, right? We can identify something and we we have positive energy. We're doing that right now with our practice. We have contact with the teachings of the Dharma. They give us a certain feeling. 
And then we want, but this is a positive wanting. We want to understand. We want to grow. We want to undo suffering. And we follow that through. But often, and that's not, that's a kind of wanting, but it's not the craving clinging that leads to suffering. So what is that? That's reactive suffering based on pushing away, wanting that isn't sensitive to the repercussions of behavior for ourselves and others. So I guess, I mean, it's, it's so simple and powerful. It happens all the time in the world. I watched a movie uh, last week called uh, The Last Duel. It was a perfect, it's not a great movie, but it had Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and uh, a couple of their stars. And uh, it was, was a bit of a rough theme, but basically uh, it was a story of one man who was married to a, to a woman. And then another man saw that, saw that woman. They show it very simply as like he, he sees her in like, you know, looking out a window. So he has contact, but then all of a sudden his feeling goes crazy. There's this pleasant experience. There's this feeling craving. He has to have her clinging. He holds on to that. And then he acts out in a very unskillful way. And in a way that the, the movie is framed around. And in the end, these two, these two uh, gentlemen have a, have a duel. So it leads all the way up and he ends, ends up dying. The, the person who had an unskillful relationship to his sense impressions, if you, if, as, as it were. And he had no ability, because there's so much clinging to this process of sense imprints feelings they arise and then what comes out of that and we see this in the world again and again and again but there's something very optional and that's what this sutta is pointing to that's why i'm saying don't don't crave don't don't move into the past this way with craving clinging mind or the future The suffering is optional. The suffering is reactive. He says, the next part of this sutta is the prescription. It follows through with you shouldn't do this. And then there's a very simple, the next phrase, the next line is very simple. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. The past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. So this is a simple statement of fact, which is meant to help us to be clear. And as we continue to investigate, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that memories can't function in the present or that anticipations for the future can't function in the present. But we understand fundamentally that what has happened and what, what has happened in the past is over and what has not happened has not happened yet. I think the Dalai Lama has a phrase, something like, uh, if, if it's over, why worry? And if, if it hasn't come yet, why worry? Because you can't do anything about it, right, in the past. And you can prepare yourself as best as you can, but the future actually isn't here. So that's another way of, of, of saying, basically, this is our reality. Now, how do we align ourselves with this reality? How do we do this? Well, the Buddha in this wisdom teaching, the next phrase, 
he doesn't say take yourself away from what's there. He actually says, and here's the next line, very simple. Whatever quality is present, you see clearly right there, right there. Whatever quality is present, you see right there, right there. Now, another one, another one of the translations says it's uh, we discern with insight what is arising. Quality, what does that mean? What does this invite us into? What is this? How do we develop this capacity as well? Well, when we're practicing just clean, pure insight, then whatever's there is there. We see it. The mind is balanced enough to do this. But of course, in our real, real life situation, what we do in practice is that we learn when our minds are overwhelmed, when we see that we're getting caught in all the overlays of past and future, et cetera, that we learn to bring our attention to something that is neutral and stabilize it. Neutral in the present, say the breath something that steps out of this time is getting caught in overlays, mental overlays of time. So we learn, it's called shamatha. It's the first part, it's calming and steadying attention. And once this is established, or if our natural awareness is strong and our interest is strong, we just go right to the point. What are the qualities right now? Now with wisdom from a classic Buddhist point of view, then we see the qualities of experience and we notice that things change. And we do this because they change and we see this again and again and again with stabilized awareness. There's a natural tendency to let go of our cling to those things, including our concept of ourself that we would have invested in. We also see, and these are called the three characteristics, dukkha. We see suffering when there is clinging. And we can, we, we can taste this all the time when we're holding on to something that we don't have control over, past or future, or, or an overlay of a concept of now. This is, all, this, is, this is moving into now, being with qualities in the present moment. But we have to, this is saying we undercut our interpretation of the present as well. We don't cling to our thoughts about the present either. And when we do this, the third of the characteristics kind of shines through. And that changes our relationship to experience. It's called anatta, or the non-clinging mind. We, we let go and we find that the khandas are functional. We're functioning, but there's no clinging. And that's freedom. The Buddha goes on and he says, how does one not chase after the past? And he goes on and says, I, I had. Oh, actually, excuse me. He says, how do, how do you not get caught in the qualities of the present? And he says, you do not see self. He says it in various ways, but basically you don't see self in the object. And so if you have a thought and you see it presently arisen, you don't see self in it. When you have a perception, you don't see self in it. You don't see clinging with it. You see it as it is. 
So this is, and as, as, this, as this unfolds, then we develop the heart. And we see this again and again. He says it's the next part of the, the, the phrase is unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. It's like when we, every time we do this, we come more to the axis of being present. It's like a, it's like a boat that has a, has a centerboard that's very, that's very deep and true. And so the, the deeper and truer it is, the more when the waves come, the boat will still stay steady, even though it may move. We become this, this sense of clinging, pushing, pulling, all the thoughts that go with this. That gets replaced by a clear present moment awareness. So shamatha and vipassana, the clear seeing. And this transforms how we relate to ourselves fundamentally. This changes how we relate to what we call ourselves. So there's a, there's a, a I'll give a couple of examples of, of uh, teachings that point to this. And one is the, questions of uh, uh, King, uh, King Melinda. And I think I have it right somewhere here. So it's not, I'll just get, make it brief. Nagasena, uh, and, uh, who is a monk, is questioned by a king. And the king is talking about a sense of self, separate sense of self. And then uh, the, the monk says, well, you came here to our meeting on a chariot, a cart. And then he questions him. He says, is the cart the wheel? He says, no. Is it the axle? No. Is it the carriage? Is the, you know, the place it's sat? No. And he says, just so, we are a composition of all of these different aspects. But when we create something separate out of them, that's when we create suffering. So the way we deconstruct suffering is we see into a risen experience, we allow it to be as it is, it displays itself, it arises and passes again and again. Again, that points us to some different way of relating to ourself. And Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful way of, of pointing at this on another level, which is, he, 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 which is interdependence, but he calls it uh, interbeing. So he used the example of a sheet of paper that we write on to communicate. And he says, you know, that, that we create meaning on that through, through writing on the paper. But he said, the paper is the tree and the sun and uh, the earth and the water. So that thing which has meaning for us is all of these elements. And we are in the same way connected to everything else. We all inter are. And what this does, both of these examples, is that we break down this sense of separateness. And it leaves space for our hearts to be both freer in relationship to what's arising and also changes our relationship to life. And at the core of the Buddhist teaching is a very deep respect for life. It's non-harming, clear seeing, and then there's a natural ripple effect that moves out in circles of compassion and care. So it changes the relationship of who we are to ourselves and the world when you start to see this way. 
he goes on in the next aspect of the teaching is he says ardently doing what should be done today so there's this kind of strong language um, but this this points to patience persistence and for myself i've noticed this as a real deep devotion to being present a curiosity and i think for many of us that's that's a way to translate the sense of ardency because we can often have ardency meaning over efforting it's not that and actually in the factors that help us to wake up we can never have too much mindfulness, clear present moment awareness. And then towards the end of the teaching, he says, for who knows tomorrow death, there's no bargaining with death and his mighty horde. Now this is kind of a, a teaching of a, there's kind of a carrot that's often given in teachings, which is, to get peace. And there's also a stick, which is understanding that if we don't work with the transformative qualities of our heart and our mind, when things do break down, when they are rougher, then we may not have the skills, we may not actually have cultivated a heart that will serve us in times of need. And then this is taken to the, to the extreme. Who knows tomorrow death? And this is a, this is really classic in the Buddhist teachings, but what I've noticed in many people I've worked with and also in myself is that when something happens where we get scared, something happens where there's some fragility of our life comes, comes shining through for a bit, then we often get humbled, can even open us. What's important here? How can I touch something that's beyond this? But then when things go back, if they do go back, then often we get complacent again. So the teachings of the Buddha kind of work as a reflective piece so that we can understand that this is part of the process of living, dying is, and all the things that come, which is often unpleasant towards the end of death. We all have our stories. I just spent uh, last weekend with my 89-year-old grandfather, uh, grandfather, <laughs> father, um, in New Hampshire, my hometown of Hanover, and, and um, he had a health scare. Just there's tremendous, uh, it's very fragile. So recognizing this when it's happening, but also when we're healthy, can really be a very powerful incentive to practice with this diligence. And the last line is, whoever lives thus ardently, relentlessly both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day. Relentlessly. So that means steadily, consistently. In our practice as it matures, we often think that this means we have to keep doing, striving. When we're, but then when we bang our head against the wall, so to speak, in practice for long enough, then we sometimes, or if we have the correct instructions or we find instructions that, that resonate with us, then we find a balance so that there's a natural steadiness in the quality of care and attention that we bring to our living. And that this starts to have its own, its own momentum on its own. So when the Buddha says relentlessly, we can take that as we have to strive, but often when we strive, we're actually adding clinging. We're actually moving into, I want that. I want to, focus on my breath really hard so I can get peace. 
which is very different than the ardency of a mind that understands how to create steadiness and then how to abide in that steadiness and how to see clearly and move in a way that is steady. And that's the cornerstone of the Buddha's teachings because that's how insight arises when the mind has stabilized in awareness and then it changes our relationship to inner and outer experience and transforms it. And when we can do this over time, when this, when this matures and when we have more auspiciousness, and I, I chose this translation of the sutta because I think it is auspicious. I, I know that there's, a, there's a, a fundamental shift that can happen in how we're living our lives so that one is worldly based and another is how we relate to it based. And I know I've had bad stuff happen in my life at times where I felt like the quality of care and attention I brought into myself and others and my inner experience was, 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 was steady, was good, was authentic. And that say at the end of the day, I would have the data, I would, have the, I would know what had happened that wasn't good, but my heart would feel like, hmm, Something really, something was really positive. It was auspicious in how you how you work with these conditions. So I think that's what the, the the Buddha is is pointing to. And I'll give a couple, just a couple of ways. Just I was a little creative with language in my own reflection on this that I think um, we do this. It can apply. And one is uh, having a sense of functional self versus dysfunctional self. <laughs> so that's just the creative language I'm using. So the dysfunctional self that we're talking about here and we see it in the world is when there is clinging. There's just clinging. We're not, does anyone have, know any people where they, you feel, and this could be even, I know some people that are, that are quite um, devoted to God in their own way and they have this. They feel like their life, this, this body or in yoga traditions, it's in different traditions where there's a sense that this body and this mind and this heart, they're, they're serving something that isn't just the mind pushing and pulling and wanting an achievement, which these signals we get so deeply ingrained in us. That there's some kind of buoyancy that happens when, when we realize this self, this, 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 this thing that's made up of our body and, and our, you know, our, our perceptions, our thoughts, our our, our, our awareness, our consciousness, feeling tone. It's all, it all, it all is something, but it's in the frame of functioning for something else. So the Dharma is functioning for the qualities of non-harming and kindness and clarity. So when we're a Dharma practitioner, these are the qualities that we're handing, not handing over because we have to do, we have to do work. Right? We, have to, we have to cultivate this. But there's a sense that it becomes this body, our, our capacities of mind and heart, they are functioning for something that is different than just our desires. And that's, that's a revolutionary change. Dysfunctional self is all the selves on the planet, eight billion egos running around, bumping into each other and having a lot of conflict. And having a lot of what we might call unnecessary conflict and see, we see what that happens to our, to our children, our children's children, to the planet. We see it in the world in politics, we see it everywhere. So this would just, it's a, it's maybe you just see it as a cute way of using language, but I think it actually, there's a deep dysfunction that we are inhabiting as a species on this planet. 
And the Dharma is actually saying, let's, let's use this. Let's use our individuality, but do it in a way that is more functional for the whole, for these principles, living in a different way. And then the second one is um, uh, functional time versus, uh, and this one's very practical for us, versus mm, maybe you could say dysfunctional time or clinging time where we, or Krishnamurti, uh, one, of, one of the people who's inspired me deeply calls it psychological time where we're getting caught up in all of our thinking about and we don't have a skillful relationship to actually the past, present, and future. So we can have a skillful relationship to time where we actually, and this is very important for the sutta, where memories arise and we, we see them as qualities in the present. So everything arises in the present when you're practicing this. It doesn't mean you don't have any memories. If you're practicing just shamatha, then you may want to get away from those memories and get, get grounded in just being present. But then when you practice vipassana, open awareness, awareness itself has a strong enough life so that it brings everything onto the path. What we call a memory is now a present moment experience. What we call planning mind or anxiety about the future, that's now a present moment experience. And when we see clearly in this way, then we can learn from the past and we can project as skillfully as we, as we can into the future. So it's a skillful use of time. But we're not becoming hostage to time. And we know the difference. When we learn to touch, so when we look into qualities in this future, when we look into the qualities of experience, knowing the nature of experience, letting things arise and pass, having a more fluid relationship with experience, then what happens is our inner awareness becomes stronger. It becomes something that we can abide in, that we can live from. Utejaniya says, the uh, uh, Theravadan monk says, the innate nature of our mind is wakefulness, where nothing is created. So we're stepping outside of time. There are no conditions, just bare awareness, and we can reside in this. This can be the sense of coming home to the present. Ajahn Chah used to say, uh, be the one who knows. So that, that center place, it's the middle way in Buddhism. We stand in the center with awareness. The Buddha said, when he was asked what he was after he was awake, and he said, I'm awake. The quality of wakefulness allows us to have a functional relationship to time where we can work within it, past, present, and future, but we're not bound by it. Our mind isn't clinging and pushing. To me, that's really the essence of the, of the sutta. Um, there was a Cambodian monk who used to come to IMS. He was actually the grand patriarch. And I, I forget his name now, actually now, but uh, he gave one teaching that I found, it's, it's like a living koan. And he said, uh, do, do you eat time or does time eat you? Now, don't try to figure it out. I, I haven't actually figured out the answer. <laughs> but is time, is our conceptual overlay on experience of time, is that eating up the quality of our life? We have to know for ourselves if it is. Or is the quality of our life, when we have a skillful relationship to time, a functional relationship to time, are we creating 
moments where we're actually we're actually outside of time or we're deeply timed when we know when we're deeply into something time has a very different dimension it's actually these teachings are actually to be at this suit points to being outside of our conventional view of future and past and present with any overlays on it so just maybe live with that one a little bit but i don't try to find an answer at least doesn't help me too much and then i want to end with a story that's by uh I just read it really quite recently, and it's a, a story of an, an ancient king in India who, ever since he was young, he had one person that would bring him milk. And he got very used to this milk. Okay. And then the, the person who brought his milk uh, died. And someone else became brought his milk. And when he got the new milk, it was, he didn't like it. It was very rich. This was much fuller. And uh, in the beginning, he had a hard time digesting it. But then little by little, he learned to, to love it. He learned to grow to really love it. It was nutritious. It was full. And so he sent someone out to find out, because I guess he uh, found out if this guy was legit. The old, well, why, was, why were the milk so different? And he found out through his you know, doing research that uh, the man who had bring him and brought him this milk for all these years, he was diluting it. He was cutting it. He was a thief. And so I think I like this image very much because when we learn to live as the sutta is pointing us into the heart of the present moment, we're so habituated to being in this kind of trance, these overlays of what our mind does in relation to the future that hasn't come, planning for it, but going much beyond just that, the psychological attachment to future and past, the movement that creates something that once we taste the clarity of clear, direct living, it can feel like we're, we're cheating ourselves. Now the Buddha said our mind is our best friend and our worst enemy. So there's no one there's no one outside of our own experience. Now, the conditioning of the world is a very big contributor of this. When we, when we buy into right, all the messages. But the power and the beauty of these teachings is that we have, we have this inner capacity to come into a fundamentally different relationship to time, to our sense of self. And it's very simple. It's now. It's now. It's now. So I just call us to investigate when we see ourselves through our habit energy, are we cheating the quality of our life? Are we putting overlays? And when we practice deeply, when we are simple and humble and direct and clear in how we live and how we practice, is this more, is this more nourishing and, uh, and more auspicious? So I'd like to finish as in silence together with us. I'll just read the the pith instructions again. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present 
you clearly see right there, right there. Not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today. For who knows, tomorrow, death. There's no bargaining with mortality and his mighty horde. Whoever lives thus ardently, relentlessly, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day. So says the peaceful sage. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. I hope the reflection was uh, valuable. I'd just like to express my gratitude for, for being here. And just, I, I really appreciate the sharing. So it's coming together in this way. I feel like so much is learned when we practice together, but then when we share our hearts with each other, there's a clarity that comes out in lifting things out and just, just holding them together. And I, I wanna thank you, Nico, as well for your, your very uh, skillful stewardship of this and to the CIMC community and for CIMC for, for existing. I think it's a really precious, uh, valuable jewel on the planet. And I'm glad that uh, it exists and that it's been able to exist in this form on Zoom and that you'll, as you said, that we'll be back uh, in person when the, uh, more fully in person uh, when the conditions are right. So thank you. And thanks so much everyone for being here and have a good evening.